0: Hello and welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host John Green and here we are the fourth Sunday after the epiphany in the year 2021. At least I think that's where it is. It's been difficult to keep track of time over the last almost a whole year now because every day seems like every other day in so many ways and so here we are in the middle of this pandemic still and we're still moving forward but we're still in the presence of Almighty God, who is still in control of all things, no matter what it might look like, no matter whether it looks like a pandemic is in control or whatever else is going on in the world is in control. We know that He is still on the throne and will be forever and has been from forever. So here we are, and it's just another week gone by, and we've had a good week, had a wonderful dinner with friends last night, met some uh, new friends, and just had a blast with them. Looking forward to a good week coming up. It's my wife, Suzanne's birthday. And so we're going to get away for, you know, a couple of days or whatever and, and enjoy being together a little bit and, and see some new things and have some fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, hopefully she's looking forward to it, too. Uh, so we've got, you know, we've been together about 35 years now. And so we're 35 and a half, really. We got married in 1985, the end of August. And so here we are 35 and a half years later, still mostly enjoying life. I make life unenjoyable sometimes. But I'm looking forward to this week, and then we got a couple of weeks after that, and it'll be Lent already, and it seems like forever ago, but last year, actually, there's a group that gathers. We gather at our house and, uh, on Sundays, and we haven't been doing that for one reason or another over this last year, and that all started on um, St. Patrick's Day last year, which happened to coincide with, um, with Ash Wednesday, and so uh, it's, it's been a long year, frankly. Um, if I didn't have the podcast and I didn't have to have do these things, then I might have gone out of my mind by now. And so I'm thankful that you're with me on this journey. I'm enjoying it and I'm looking forward to doing some more and, and got some plans or hopes actually for, to expand the podcast and do some other things. Had a great conversation with a friend last week who I've known for, wow, I don't know, a long time, like 15, 16 years. And she and I were talking and she suggested something and i'm uh, interested in doing that so if you keep that in your prayers if you'll keep it in your prayers that, that god would provide me the time and mostly the money to uh, step up and do some additional things i'd really appreciate that um, i'm excited about that opportunity I, I i love to teach and i love the word of god and so i'm excited about the possibility of doing some new and different things so if you just keep me and in your prayers for that i would greatly appreciate it so here we are. We're at this fourth Sunday after the Epiphany. Just you know, what two more Sundays prior to Lent, um, and so we're still looking at. And remember, Epiphany is the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the continuing revelation that begins with with Christmas in many ways, um, when the angels appear to. The shepherds, and then continuing after that with the Magi, the revelation to the Gentile world, and then now it's the unfolding revelation through the life of Jesus that we look at during the Epiphany season. So here we are now, this fourth week, and and we've got um, the, the lessons run from Psalm 111, and it's the entire thing, and it begins with a great word, Hallelujah! Give praise and thanks to the Lord. I'll give thanks to the Lord my whole heart in the assembly of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the deeds of the Lord. They're studied by all who delight in them. It's an important thing for us to study the word of the Lord. The, um, the Jewish sages kind of believed that, that there were several levels of study. There was the, the plain textual meaning of the word, and that was good enough for most people. It was good enough um, to fulfill the commandment to study. But what they also believed is, is that that knowledge of the the literal meaning of the text should lead you to pursue more and it basically they would say it's through the inspiration of the holy spirit in some ways that that you would want to pursue more and deeper knowledge of god that's possible and so that's how you get things like midrash and then that's how you get to the more esoteric um kinds of things from the sages and the um the Kabbal- uh, the kabbalistic teachings you have to be careful about the way you say kabbalah because you can say Kabbal and that has a meaning today that, that might get me branded a conspiracy theorist if I said cabal rather than Kabbalah. So it's, it's an important thing. It's the important thing in uh, Judaism, in fact, is to study the Word of God. And, and it's important for us as Christians to study the Word of God, and we do so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with which we have been baptized And so we should have greater understanding, and we should constantly be encouraging one another with things the Spirit shows us as we study the Word of God. And so the psalmist goes on to say, "...His work is full of majesty and splendor, and His righteousness endures forever. He makes His marvelous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He gives food to those who fear Him. He's ever mindful of His covenant. He's shown His people the power of His works in giving them the lands of the nations." The works of his hands are faithfulness and justice, and all his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever because they are done in truth and equity. He sent redemption to his people. He commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. And then we hear those words that appear over and over again The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who act accordingly have a good understanding, and his praise endures forever. And it is the beginning of wisdom, is the fear of the Lord. But that's not the end of wisdom. We do come to him in in fear and trembling. I've heard people say, oh, that, that word means worship. Nope, they have other words for worship. They certainly didn't need to use the word fear for that. And so there is a fear in thinking about and considering a being who could, at the words of his mouth, bring all creation into being. Bring all of us into being. There's fear that should come in with the idea of the flood and Noah as judgment on the world, with Sodom and Gomorrah as judgment, and so many different things as we see through the Old Testament that come in where it comes in judgment. And then the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the starting place from which all wisdom and knowledge begins. We we come in reverent fear, worshipful fear, um, if, if we are His children but it begins with a different kind of fear. It should begin with a different kind of fear, at least wisdom does. Um, We should understand that he is a God of justice and that we all deserve death. As Paul makes plain in the first few chapters of Revelation, he begins with speaking of the heathen world and then brings it home and brings it to the religious community as well and said that we all have deserved death because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then he points us in the right direction for the remedy of that, and that's Jesus Christ, the one who lived without sin. So here we begin to seek after wisdom. And it says, those who act accordingly have a good understanding, and, and that is acting is the study of the word so that you may know, but you may do. And then you have a good understanding, and that's sort of what the quote that I use from Anselm of Canterbury says is that it's faith seeking understanding what he says is I bring faith to the study of God's Word to the study of all things and the reason I bring faith to that first is I want to know more my faith is in this one who has done such great things for me and who has done such great things in the creation of all things given us the beauty that surrounds us in all its manifold forms and and then now I seek to understand more about the one who I know and who I fear. So we begin to seek after knowledge in that way. And one of the things that we struggle with, I think, is the the distinction or the dichotomy, the seeming dichotomy between faith and knowledge that the world wants to tell us. What we have is faith. Yes, it is. But that is not what defined in the same way the world defines faith. And and when they mock faith, what they're not understanding is, is that that faith isn't based in blind faith. It's based in the Word of God, the revelation of God, beginning from the beginning of creation when He reveals Himself in that way, and then continues to reveal Himself to those who are created in His image and filled with His Spirit. And then when we deny that part, Paul says we lose our way completely that's what his argument is in Romans one, and so the. But what we know by faith, there are certain things we know, and it's not just a matter of taking things on faith. No, my faith in the the divinity of Jesus, his his coexistence with the Father, is based in the gospel accounts of those who were there, who saw and heard all that he did and all that he taught. And so the, the, the belief in the death on the cross is that it is attested both in the Gospels and in other places. And the Gospels were written within the living memory of those who could have disputed it, and yet they believed. Uh, my belief in the death of Jesus is in the first-hand witness accounts of those who were there, those who saw it, not just including the disciples but including Roman soldiers, including Nicodemus, including Joseph of Arimathea. My faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the attestation of the Gospels. It's also the attestation of those that that they said saw Jesus after the resurrection. So my faith isn't just in some fairy tale story. No, it's, it's in the words of the gospel, that which is attested by many witnesses, people whose names are given through the gospels. And so that that's Luke's whole thing is to give um, his... He writes to a particular person, his name is Theophilus, and what he wanted to do was give him a full accounting of all the things that he saw and heard about Jesus, and so Luke went out and made an investigative journal, essentially, of the life of Jesus and then continued that work in the Acts of the Apostles. And so he, he didn't do it based on rumors, he did it based on facts, the things that he chased down and witnesses that he interviewed. And so faith is not just taking something on, um, on faith. You know, It's based in truth. It's based in witnesses. And so to know something then, in that sense, is, a, is different from the way the world uses faith. And the way that we know things is, is that we've seen them at some level for ourselves and then so the attestation of those witnesses then matches the attestation of the holy spirit that's given to us when we believe so that we can ourselves attest to those things and then god begins to give us further personal revelation he allows us to see things that he's doing in the world today so that we can be further witnesses to that so when we look at the lessons for today we look at what does it mean to know and, and what do we know? And what requires faith to know? Because that's an important thing as well. So in the Old Testament lesson is the predicate for everything else, and it's Deuteronomy 18. 15 to 20, the Lord your God will raise up, this is Moses speaking to the people. Now remember, Deuteronomy is essentially Moses' valedictory address to the people. He knows he's not going to the promised land. And so this is his chance to give that valedictory address where he tells them everything he thinks they need to remi- to know and be reminded of. He's pressing in the truths that have been revealed to him. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. So that's an important thing for the Samaritans. They're looking for this prophet like Moses who is to come. Based on this promise from Deuteronomy, they don't have the rest of the Old Testament. Their, their scripture is locked in just at the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books, the books of Moses. And so they're looking for that one, and that's what the Samaritan woman at the well says in John 4. But I think there's something even more interesting in that, not just for the Samaritans, but also to the Jews here. And what it says is, remember, it is to him you shall listen. That should remind you of something very specific that happened in the life of Jesus, and that's at the Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah are there. So the first revelation was the one like Moses who was to come. Jews are looking for one like Moses and one like Elijah to come. And so... They're there at the Mount of Transfiguration, then poof, they're gone when the disciples decide that they'd like to make little booths for them and capture this hallmark moment forever. And then they disappear, and then the word of God comes from heaven that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Which is exactly the same thing Moses says here that they are to do. And he says, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Oreb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they've spoken. In other words, that fear is genuine and it's true because there are sinful people in the presence of a holy God. And so they have discerned rightly that fear is the beginning of wisdom. But what they've said is is that we can't come into his presence. We have such great fear we can't come into his presence. We need a mediator between God and us. And so what God promises Moses here is, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, there'll be full justice if you don't listen and you don't do, because both those things are important. Just listening is not enough. Just hearing the words is not enough. Listening is an active thing. Hearing is a passive thing. And so listening requires you to hear, to understand, and then to act on what you know and understand. So then he goes on to say, though, but a prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So they're looking for a prophet like Moses to come. And Moses didn't just speak the words of God. He also, through Moses, God provided water. He provided healing. He provided judgment in some cases. He provided manna. He provided quail. He provided all things for them in the wilderness. And so there's a, there's a sense of this prophet is more than just one who speaks, more than just one who writes prophetically. He's one who also does things like Moses, because a prophet like Moses needs to do the things of Moses as well. And so when Jesus does those things in healing, in providing food on a couple of occasions, in all the things that he does... He authenticates himself as the one like Moses, and so we're going to skip forward to the gospel and then come back to the epistle today. I want to skip forward to the gospel because the the uh, the epistle has a lot to do with knowledge and what you do with knowledge and how you handle it. Because it's not just knowing things that's important; it's what you do with what you know that matters. So what you've got to do and what you had to do to know anything or to bring justice in Israel was it had to be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. All things had to be attested in that way. And so we need to be careful of what we know and what we say we know. We need to be careful that we don't put our trust in wild conspiracy theories, for instance. What we need to do is be able to establish what we know in facts on the ground and in documents and in other ways we need to be able to establish the truth of things lest we be led astray and i fear that we're in danger right now on on all sides of being led astray what we need to do is focus and fix our eyes on the lord and and so what we get here now in the gospel lesson is mark 1 21 to 28 and they went into capernaum and immediately on the sabbath he jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching capernaum was the base for where jesus taught and where he where he lived during this time. And the presumption is that he lived at the house of Peter because they were frequently at the house of Peter. And so the assumption is that he is there, and because he's a visiting sort of rabbi, he's beginning to make a name for himself, he, he can teach in the synagogue. And then it says, they, the congregation at the synagogue, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, the scribes had secondhand knowledge, right? I mean, they knew, sort of like I do, they know the Word of God. And so they were dividing the Word of God. They were teaching the Word of God. But Jesus, when he taught, had a different sort of an authority that was apparent to the people Who were there, and you've seen it with different teachers probably and preachers in your life. You've seen somebody who has a unique authority with the Word of God, and the people respond to that authority. It's not leadership, that's not exactly the right word. No, it's somebody who you know has spent time in the Word of God. The Word of God dwells richly in them, and God's giving them an impartation of His Holy Spirit to then explain and divide that Word for His people. And so you've seen this kind of authority, but not at this level that Jesus has it. Because Why? Because He is the Word of God. He's not only embodying the Word of God, but, but He is the Word of God, and so it's perfect in Him. It's unmarred by sin. There's no hindrance to the power and understanding because He is firmly, fully fixed in God, not divided in any way. Not a man with a divided mind. So He is the source of this teaching he, he he is the author so he has authority as the author and then immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out what have you to do with us jesus of nazareth have you come to destroy us what would be the word you would use for the way to describe what that emotion is to be fear right what have you to do with us Jesus of Nazareth why or have you come to destroy us there's a fear of Jesus, There's a fear of his person and his authority in speaking and teaching the word is that which brings forth this fear. Because that demonic spirit, that unclean spirit recognized in the authority of Jesus over against the scribes was there's something different about him. He is not just Jesus of Nazareth. Has he come here to destroy us and then says, I know who you are the Holy One of God. This one with the unclean spirit, that's not an unclean spirit when it says us. What this is, because did you hear the the last pronoun? I know who you are. Have you come to destroy us? Lumps in everybody else in the synagogue. And so that unclean spirit knows something. Have you come here to destroy us? You're the Holy One of God. I know who you are. So this one with the unclean spirit, this is the unclean spirit speaking when it says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, that demon recognizes Jesus and recognizes a greater authority even then than those who are around do. And so that man knows through the power of that unclean spirit that that authority is far greater than anybody else in that room recognizes at that moment. And realize it's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this one is. And so Jesus rebuked him, the demon, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Why does Jesus tell this thing to be quiet if it's making a testimony of him? It's because he doesn't need or want testimony from demonic spirits. do you see the power that Jesus has? And the unclean spirit convulsing him, the man, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. That once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So the people saw and heard Jesus. They were amazed. And then what did they do? They questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. You know, what's interesting is that my first reaction to that is, is the unclean spirits obey Jesus much more readily than people do. We've been given something they don't have, that they also have a recognition of Jesus, especially in the Gospels, that, that people don't. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out on all flesh. And so people see and they question and they wonder and they're amazed, but they're not sure. The demons are perfectly certain. (laughs) And because they're perfectly certain who He is, they have fear and they have knowledge, and that knowledge is what causes them to immediately obey when Jesus commands them. We don't have that perfect knowledge yet. We don't have perfect knowledge of ourselves, much less God. But we would do well to go back sometimes to that first love, which is based in fear, which would cause us to be more obedient creatures, obedient children of our Father. And so here you get people who can't figure out quite who Jesus is. They're really impressed. They're amazed. They're all that, but they're not sure at the end of the day. They're questioning among themselves but the demon knew exactly who it was and didn't have any problem identifying him. They had fear. They had a proper fear because they had a greater knowledge. And Imagine that, right? A demon knows more. Well, a demon seen things. And so they know God and so they obeyed him because they knew what he could do if they didn't obey. And so they listened and obeyed. The people didn't necessarily listen and obey. They put him on a cross later. But this demonstration of power and authority with respect to unclean spirits as well as the word of God should show you, yes, he has great power. He is a prophet like Moses in many ways. He has authority like Moses did because Moses had the authority to judge the people, and where that authority come from? It came from those times when he met with the Lord and came back with a shining face. They knew that he had been with God. Therefore, they knew that he knew something they didn't know. He had greater understanding because he spent those forty days on the mountain with God, receiving the Torah. And so they knew they had it secondhand. Jesus comes with firsthand knowledge, even greater than Moses. He comes with the authority of the author. And that brings us to the epistle lesson today, which is 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Paul is speaking in this passage. He's going to spend a lot of time speaking about what it means to, to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. And now what you need to remember is where he's writing this to, and he's writing it to the people of Corinth. And the people of Corinth had a problem with idols, largely because they were just um, everywhere. In the city of corinth temples to idols were just as ubiqu- as ubiquitous as 7-elevens are in some parts of america right so there's there's all kinds of gods and goddesses there there are temples to uh, apollo and poseidon hera juno athena octavia um let me think who else asclepius which is a healing god that took the form of a snake um, there was Ephesian Artemis, uh, Nicaid, uh, which is the god of victory, Tike, Aphrodite. I mean, they're just everywhere in that place. And the way that most idol worship went was you came and provided a sacrifice to that idol. Um, part of it went to the priests of the idol. Part of it went for the sacrifice. And the largest part actually went to the worshiper. And that worshiper had two options once that had been sacrificed to the idol, and one is they could consume it themselves in a ritual meal with others, or they could sell it in the marketplace. And so it was difficult to avoid, in some ways, meat that had been sacrificed to idols because it was literally everywhere. There were so many temples, and everybody worshipped one of these gods or more of those gods, and they made sacrifices based on their need because the gods served different needs in the lives of people. And so almost everything that you would buy in a shop would have probably been sacrificed to an idol. And so it's difficult to, to avoid that in Corinth, even though it was an injunction given by the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 to new believers, Gentile believers, and it was, they were to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols. But Paul knew that in Corinth that was a special situation where it was difficult to avoid meat that had been sacrificed to idols. But here he's taking on a very specific instance of, of the sacrifices to idols he says therefore as to oh no i'm sorry now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge he's dealing with gnostics here people who have a special kind of knowledge <clears throat> but, but he also says this knowledge puffs up but here's the important thing love builds up If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know his ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the greatest thing here, Paul says, is, of course, love. And certainly I've known people who have knowledge or who claim to have knowledge and who can sometimes demonstrate that knowledge but who have no love. And then Paul goes into that in 1 Corinthians 13, which we read often at weddings. It's better to have love than knowledge, Paul says. It's not an either-or situation, though. Don't let that, quote, knowledge destroy you don't let it become the main thing love he says builds up and if anyone loves god he is known by god that's a far greater thing than to know is to love god therefore you can be known by god and there's nothing greater in the world than to be known by the living god And then he goes on, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. So there's nothing to fear with an idol because there's nothing there. It's an illusion compared to the living God. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, and he's using lower cases there. I mean, it wouldn't be exactly the way you'd write it in Greek, but, but he, he is diminishing those gods and lords by, by using many with them, but there's no god but one. So, in other words, if there's only one god, these other, the many gods and the many lords, M-A-N-Y, many, are nothing. They're not gods or lords, either one, because there's only one. Yet for us, there's only one God, the Father, from whom, for, from whom all thi- are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That our existence is completely based in Jesus Christ, and it's for God that we exist, because he saved us and given us true life. And then he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Remember in in Corinth, again, most of the people who would have been Christians in this new church thing would have been those who had previously, like last week, been worshiping idols. And so they had given, in their minds, they had given great power, wisdom, and whatever else to those idols. And so he says, they are new believers and they can't go back and do that they can't in their minds separate their former worship with the truth and he's not blaming them for that he's not speaking to them even here really he's speaking to those who would claim to have knowledge and he says food won't commend us to god we're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do but take care that this right of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols, which could be a stumbling block and a problem to him because he's got so much emotion and so much faith and belief still, even though he's accepted Jesus. And we've seen people do this. They, they will uh, mix the two things. They'll keep one foot in each camp, hedging their bets on things. And, you know, it's a superstition, maybe, or it's not that they've come from idol worship, it's that they've got this these superstitions where they've worshipped some other deity along the way, and so we can't mix those two things, and we don't want to be a stumbling block to that brother because they might then go back to that if they see that the, the circumstances of their lives are struggling, they might reach back and start trying to worship that idol again just to... to Get out of the situation. And so he goes on to say, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore food makes my brother stumble. I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Meat was the sacrifice that was given. There were no grain offerings that were then later either consumed or sold in the marketplace. And so what Paul says and what Jesus would say too is, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom... Because Paul says, look, if you do this, if you cause your brother to sin, then you've sinned against Christ. You're in danger of your own judgment by doing that. And so he is mixing knowledge, love, and fear all in one bundle here. Don't let your knowledge become sin for your brother, because if you do, it's sin for you. It's sin against Christ. It's sin against the cross. It's sin against the resurrection. It's sin against the throne. Because Christ died for that one. And so what Paul is doing is is talking about knowledge, love, and fear all in one little passage here. So don't let your knowledge become something that keeps you from doing the loving thing. So, yes, we know and love Jesus Christ. We recognize that He alone is the propitiation for sin, the only way we get into... Eternity is by believing in Jesus Christ, His death, resurrection, and ascension, and His coming again, His divinity. And so we can't let anything override that, particularly our knowledge. We'll never know more important things than those. And so we can't let our other knowledge cause us to stumble, nor can we allow it to cause another to stumble and so love supersedes all these things but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom but it's not the end of wisdom because then love because becomes the important thing in our lives Jesus counted everything as loss and came here laid everything aside including perfect union with the Father for love so let's not let what we know ever cause us to do anything that would cause another to stumble. And let's not let our knowledge become a stumbling block to our love. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Thank you for being with me this week. I'll see you again next week for the fifth Sunday of the Epiphany.